Welcome to Not Your Average Financial Podcast. Guys, you have found our top 10 episode playlist for 2022. These are the cream of the crop, the best of the best from 2017 to today. In fact, these are the episodes that I personally would share with someone who's just learning about this strategy. Maybe you know somebody who'd like to hear this episode too. All right, here we go. Enjoy the episode. This is Not Your Average Financial Podcast, episode 41, combining bank on yourself with the asset class of real estate. Traditional financial planning is no longer working. And in the new normal economy, your hosts, Mark Willis and Holly Bach, invite you to join us as we engage the new and improved steps for establishing financial sanity. Be curious, be stable, be sane. This is Not Your Average Financial Podcast, helping you think different about your money, your economy, and your future. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Not Your Average Financial Podcast. I'm so glad to be with you all today, and thank you for joining us. So in the studio with me today is the lovely Katrina Willis. Hello. And Holly Bach. Hello. All right. So we're in the midst of another great episode uh, focusing, of course, on the real estate uh, asset class. And how, does, how in the world could we use something like Bank on Yourself in combination with this thing called real estate? Uh, so, you know, I think that there's certain financial vehicles that really pair well together. It's like wine and cheese. And if you're able to put those two things together, they have such a great combination that actually augments the power and the investment returns that you'd receive from one or the other standing alone. It's almost like, oh, like nitro and glycerin. If you put those two <laughs> things together, they or baking soda and vinegar, right? All of a sudden, <laughs> something brand new magical happens. Peanut butter, jelly, you know, go on. Uh, you know, we could go on forever here, right? I just knew the nitro and glycerin was going to oh, come out. As yes. soon as you started saying about they're more powerful together than separate, I was like, nitro and glycerin, it's Batman, coming, it's Batman, coming, and it came. Batman and Robin, <laughs> you know, Thelma and Louise, you know. Uh, so, so we're looking at building a solid real estate investment portfolio in this uh, mini-series. But, of course, we've talked some about how this takes some risk. It takes patience, of course, and of course, it takes a lot of money. Okay, it often even requires other people's money, uh, what we call a bank. And of course, OPM is sort of tossed around, other people's money is tossed around as a good thing. And yes, you can have leverage when you use other people's money, but it's important to remember that leverage works both ways. You know, what happens if they turn the leverage on you? And all of a sudden, you're being leveraged by the bank, right? So the bank certainly is able and, and certainly does siphon much of the profits off those properties if you, have, if you have mortgages up to your eyeballs. So why take so much risk with your real estate only to send all that money possibly to a banker down the street? So guys, why, why in, invest in real estate in the first place? Yeah, I think that there's obviously a couple different strategies with real estate um, that you can kind of get into. There's a lot of, and with those strategies, there's a kind of a unique reason why people might be getting into it. And so um, one that's fairly common is, you know, rental properties, income properties. And so, you know, people kind of like to have that steady, passive stream of income that they know is going to be coming in. Uh, hopefully, <laughs> mm -hmm. each and every month, you know, from their, their renters. And so that's kind of, you know, for some people, like it's the draw of that passive income. Um, another one could possibly be security, you know, when it comes to home values traditionally or historically, you know, mm -hmm. people tend to think that it has actually been 
you know, a smoother ride to an extent, you know, than your stock market, you know, real estate market being a little, little less volatile. Um, and typically the underlying assets in, you know, real estate, they just don't fluctuate quite as much as stocks and bonds do. Mm-hmm. Um, another strategy would kind of be like self-occupation. And so you could, you know, purchase a home for yourself and you could actually live in that home, reside in it, slowly kind of fix it up while you live inside the home. And then once it's fixed up, you can go ahead and sell it, hopefully for a profit and you know, move on. You could do that same thing again or use the profit that you made to buy an even nicer house for yourself that when you don't have to fix sure. up, maybe. Um, yeah. Or just kind of keep, you know, wash, rinse, repeat with mm-hmm. the same strategy and kind of be accruing more and more capital each time you do it. So a lot of different strategies. Um, a lot of places, a lot of places here in Chicago, you can have uh, live upstairs and your renters downstairs or vice versa. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. So, and, and of course, all the specific tax advantages of real estate, you know, the capital gains rates are often uh, um, preferred over income tax rates, and that's typically how you'd be taxed on investment properties. And those are often deferred through 1031 exchanges. If you do lose money on real estate, sometimes you can carry that forward as well. Uh, so why doesn't everybody just throw every last penny into real estate? You know, why isn't uh, everybody successful in real estate investing? Any mm-hmm. guys, any guesses on that? Yeah, well, unfortunately, like so many things in life, you know, there, there's pros and cons with everything and there's no one strategy or one thing that is perfect. If there were, like you said, everyone would be doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so real estate even does kind of come with its own, you know, downsides or potential downsides or risks, like you mentioned, that might prevent some people from really kind of making that leap and, and getting into it. And I know in our last episode, we talked about um, the you know uh, labor of statistics and how they were sharing that homes since 1980 haven't really grown much above the inflation rate. So really, the home values have just been keeping up with inflation, mm, and that's yeah. about it. So if you're just talking about the buy and hold strategy with homes, yeah. <laughs> you know, you're you're going to be kind of really exactly where you were in so 1980 this is, almost. So this is the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, and as a nation, mm-hmm. so every real estate market is local, right? But overall... In general, yeah, yeah. The, the country. Okay, got exactly. it. Exactly. So, of mm-hmm. course, you know, different spots of um, the country, different counties mm-hmm. or areas might might have a different story, but overall. And yeah. let me just bring this up just quickly, but think about how many people are investing in the stock market. There's a, there's a whole nation of people who are wanting to know the exact right price to pay for that stock, Apple stock, whatever. How many people are bidding on that one particular real estate property? Maybe two, five, 10, 15 people. That means the price could be right or it could be way wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, um, if, if you've got a million people deciding on a, on a specific value of a stock, that probably means it's, you know, it's the, the wisdom of the crowd, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but if it's just two or three or five of us bidding on a property, we could bid that thing up and course, lose a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, of course, also people will say to, um, you know, do your real estate investing through a self-directed IRA. You know, it does kind of sound like a, a sweet deal right. to earn that whopping inflation adjusted 0.6% in your self-directed IRA. But, um, you know, don't forget, if you were to get that 0.6% uh, from it, then even some of that still needs to go to Uncle Sam right. for taxes. Yeah. And how much can I put in that self-directed IRA every year? Mm, 5500 bucks if you're under age 50. A lot of people, you know, don't realize that it's just hard to really accumulate a lot, a lot of wealth in one of these IRAs. Well, what can you do with $5,500 in real estate? 
Oh, you know, you can buy a front door, you know. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> I have a door in my portfolio. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. just a door, but <laughs> all right. Well, and then don't forget the arm's length transaction, too, which is another kind of issue. It what, do you, what do you mean by that? What's that mean? Yeah. So it just means that when you have a self-directed IRA, and this is the biggest problem real estate investors have with self-direct, the self-directed IRA strategy is that it can't, the money that you're using from your self-directed IRA to invest in the properties can't be anything that you're associated with in any way. It can't mm-hmm. be a home you're investing in. It can't be a home your business is investing in. Mm-hmm. It has to be some completely separate entity. So you're kind of left running around every, um, every six months, every year. However, long, you know, your investment is with your self-directed IRA with these other people having to find a new investor to like put this money with sure. um, to earn that return. And so um, for a lot of real estate investors, you know, the reason that they're in real estate, the reason that they're doing what they're doing is because they like to be in business for themselves and they like to control things. Yep. And they're the self-directed IRA routes forcing them to have to rely on other people, which typically I find the clients I talk to and work with, they don't like that. You know, right. they don't want to have to rely on someone else. They, mm-hmm. you know, they're business owners and they want to rely on themselves. That's why it's called self-directed. All right, so you're saying the U.S. Bureau of uh, Labor Statistics is saying that after we adjust for inflation, we're really only seeing home prices uh, exceed inflation rates by about 0.6% per year. That's pre-tax money. So take a little bit off for the Internal Revenue Service. Uh, What about the other um, factors that come into play in in that um, return? like expenses and so forth. Yeah, no, I mean, there's absolutely expenses involved with the whole buying process, the selling process, and then, of course, you know, fixing them up, maintaining the properties. You know, there's just always going to be those things that happen. The appliances break down. I mean, that's a couple thousand dollars potentially, you know, Mm -hmm. that maybe wasn't factored into your your budget at the beginning. And so Mm -hmm. something that you thought you had mapped out so carefully, so well, was going to lead to this awesome profit margin. All of a sudden, you know, all these little things can happen and all of a sudden it can eat into it. And I mean, if you're talking about flipping every time you sell a house, there's a cost associated with that. Um, You know, buying a little less so most of the time seller pays the expenses. But um, yeah, no, I mean, there's there's all those little expenses that can kind of sneak in. And not to mention, you know, uh, we've talked about the appreciation of real estate, but uh, a lot of people buy real estate for the cash on cash return or the rental income, the cash flow which just sounds nice rolling off the tongue, cash flow. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's... Let's say there's it again. Cash flow. <laughs> oh, uh, but, <laughs> but there's, you know, non-paying tenants. And if you have uh, a multifamily unit of two or three and one of them leaves, that's like a th- losing a third of your income uh, mm-hmm. or, or less, right? Mm-hmm. So what are some other hurdles? Well, you know, we talked about control and a lot of people wanting real estate as a part of their portfolio to gain more control over their investments. But think about it. Are you really... Are you really in control of your equity in that property? If you owned a property, you know, with a lot of money in in the walls of the house, go back to our previous episodes on this. Are you really in control or do you have to ask a bank to get that money out? No, you need a bank to access that equity. Uh, you know, you have to ask someone, a bank that's generous enough to lend you uh, some more money or cash out refinance or refinance the home to get some access to that money. Right. And many are underwater on their personal residence and in their investment properties. So there's this hope of cash flow at this great expense of debt and control from the banks. Um, In the financial crisis and the credit lockdown have made it painfully clear how little control you have over the equity in your home. 
So the idea of equity in your home, it doesn't feel like a real thing. It's it's like a mirage at some level. Right. And as soon as those values drop, of course, the, or if the bank just decides not to keep that line of credit open for you, they can slash the line of credit, freeze it without warning, call on that line of credit. Most people don't realize that HELOCs are callable, meaning they would ask for your $30,000 HELOC you know, next week. Is, has that happened to. in history? Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah 2008. Uh, not that long ago. People were called oh, yeah, on. That. Oh, hey, by the way, you just lost your job. Oh, your home just lost half its value. Oh, we're going to need that $30,000 right now. Yes. Yeah, that's kind of what was happening. And that's mm-hmm. why so many people went through bankruptcies. Mm-hmm. So real estate doesn't really insulate you from that financial crisis. I mean, guys, somebody help me out here. When are you most likely going to need access to capital? During a crisis. Yeah. Yeah. And when would banks be least likely to give you that capital? During a crisis. <laughs> <laughs> and when would it be hardest to sell your property for a fair price? During a crisis. Yes, you guessed it. Right on. So uh, Mark Twain, a fellow Mark, uh, always a friend of the other Marks. uh, Mark Twain once said, a banker is a fellow who will lend you his umbrella when the sun is shining, but wants it back the minute it begins to rain. I feel like that's so true. Uh, So besides all of this, Holly, what are some other costs to maybe financing a property? Yeah, well, there's the bank financing, obviously. So when you're getting your uh, mortgage in the bank, bank, you're having to rely on that. Uh, there's also the mortgages for investment properties. You know, typically they are at higher interest rates yeah. than just someone going out looking for a residential mortgage. Um, oftentimes, they'll also require a larger down payment. Uh, typically, it's around about 25% instead of your typical uh, 20% or even less mm-hmm. um, that people oftentimes do. A monthly mortgage payment is required. Um, kind of whether you have that tenant in yeah, there or not. There you go. Yeah. And so, you know, like like you said, with tenants that might move out, well, that mortgage payment's due, whether you have someone who is paying you the paycheck to pay that mortgage. Sure. So you better have some reserves built up so that you can cover that uh, in that case. Um, also, the majority of your profits really will end up being given back to the bank if, um, you know, you, you kind of are leaning on them to be able to successfully go about your real estate investing. Mm-hmm. So they'll end up walking away with probably more from it than you will. Yep. Um, and then, you know, what other risks are you taking, you know, in this real estate venture? What risk is the bank taking on you? And so really, who's kind of taking on more of the risk in this right. scenario, mm-hmm. you or the bank? You know, the risks mm-hmm. we're taking on, is, you know, the real estate investors taking on is, is infinite almost. Yep. And then the risk the bank is taking on is is fairly minimal, yeah. provided they had, you know, a, a halfway competent underwriter, you know, working on your case. So even um, if you lose everything, you go through bankruptcy, the bank is not without recourse. They'll just come collect your, they'll garnish your wages or, or re repo the house, right? Mm-hmm. And then they'll sell it to somebody else who can't pay for the, for the mortgage. Yeah. So we yeah. are in this sort of catch-22 of real estate investing, if you think about it. Uh, you, we're sort of trapped uh, when you own property. Either we're going to pay on that mortgage and build up equity or pay cash for the property and have all this equity trapped in the walls of that property and thereby lose control of it, or we're going to keep it financed and let the profits roll like a river to the bank. Uh, so it feels to me like a lose-lose either way. Is there a way out? I would say, yeah. I would say that there's definitely a way out and a way that you can go about real real estate investing that makes perhaps more sense and can kind of give you a, a third scenario to the two that you just mentioned. Um, you know, the guarantees, the predictability, and the liquidity of the bank on yourself strategy that we've talked about a lot on this podcast um, can provide you kind of that liquid pool of contingency capital uh, to help people, you know, kind of help blunt many of the problems of real estate and give you that competitive advantage that so many other 
other real estate investors won't have and doesn't exist in the marketplace. So simple, simple as you can, Holly, what, how do we combine the baking soda and vinegar? How do we put the nitro and glycerin or the peanut butter and jelly together? How do you combine real estate and the bank on yourself strategy? Mm-hmm. So essentially what you do is you know, you'd build up the cash inside your policy, inside the bank on yourself plan. Then you would take out that equity to purchase the property, which of course could look a lot of different ways. It could just be enough for a down payment. It could be the full cash price. I mean, a lot of variability there, but essentially you're just taking the equity out of the policy and you're buying the real estate with that cash. Um, Then what's great is the policy is gonna keep growing Mm-hmm. Even on that amount you borrowed out, so you could have you know taken a maximum loan. Actually, on the loan paperwork, I noticed this the other day with one of our companies. There's a checkbox for maximum loan amount. Yeah, and I was like, that's awesome. <laughs> you can just check this box, and they'll mail you a check for as much as they possibly can. Yeah, that's so cool. Um, you know, so it's like you can check that little maximum loan amount box, check it, get your, you know, get as much cash as you possibly can out of it, go buy your real estate, and that full amount, you took as much as you possibly could out of your policy, that's all going to keep growing. Wow. Even while it, you know, it's out and helped you buy this real estate. Then you're going to control the repayment schedule uh, to the policy that you own. Hmm. And so, Essentially, what that means is that when that tenant or that tenant doesn't pay, not mm-hmm, penit, mm-hmm. Um, when that tenant doesn't pay, you, that check doesn't come in. Well, then the check doesn't have to go to the policy. There you go. Skip a month. Mm-hmm. Skip two months. You know, whatever you need to keep yourself afloat and keep yourself going. You can buy yourself that flexibility that a bank is never going to give you. And you sleep at night because you don't have you know the undertaker at your door asking for your firstborn child. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And then at the end of it all, you know, you can just sell the property and you'll pay yourself back. You'll pay that loan back to your policy and you're kind of recycling it. You know, recycle, get it back in, get it back out, just kind of wash, rinse, repeat. So it's not either or. Some people say, well, should I put every dollar I have into bank on yourself or should I just do nothing but, you know, real estate's obviously the best. Why not do everything there? No, it's a both and, you know, first pump money into this big bucket of uh, cash that you can use, then use it for real estate. When you combine them together, they catalyze the power of each. So here's a a couple of very interesting strategies. We're going to list them here. Here's the first one, the starter strategy. You can use this bank on yourself strategy with real estate to do a couple of small things first if you're just getting started. You can use it to pay your property taxes every year. Such a good idea. Yes. Property (laughs) taxes are a must expense that lowers your yield inside the real estate investment that you have, right? Because that's an expense that never goes away, even if you pay off the mortgage. So what if you could say, let's say you had a $10,000 property tax bill, put that money first into the policy, borrow it out to pay the internal revenue service, and then all year long, you're repaying that policy loan with rent money that you receive from your tenants just to spend it back again. You have a death benefit. Yep. On top of those property tax payment bucket. And you get dividends on that 10 grand over and over, just recycling that money in and out. Keeps growing. Same with homeowner's insurance, right? That's another expense. HOA specials, boy, those elevators, that leaky condo roof, whatever. The repair and maintenance costs that come into into play with real estate investment properties. Uh, Down payments, obviously. Certainly you could use the down payment as uh, the policy for a down payment purchase. All of these, you're you're doing the same strategy, which is overcoming the the problem of opportunity cost. That problem of just paying cash for things, where that money is no longer working for you. So we take the starter strategies that we just mentioned there, and we move it now to strategy number two. Strategy number two is a full cash full cash purchase of an entire real estate property. So now you've built up enough wealth inside one of your policies 
that you can borrow from the policy and pay cash at closing for the real estate investment property. That's going to allow you to increase your yield on the real estate property without any additional market risk. Let me say that again. It'll give you a more, uh, more increased yield without additional market risk. Okay. So that sounds crazy because of the loan interest. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what if you Policy have... Policy loan interest. Right. Mm-hmm. What if you have a huge amount that you took out? Yeah. But, so let's... I got, a, got oh, an example right here. Yeah, let's, let's rock it. Yeah. So, uh, so what does this actually do for me? Well, it provides a permanent line of credit. This big policy is a permanent line of credit to yourself you know, that you can use when the next recession comes and all the real estate properties drop in value. Everything goes on sale, right? Who needs that banker's umbrella anyway if you can be your own banker? So let's imagine a gentleman here. He's 45 years old. He puts in, in his case, he could afford to set aside a whopping $32,000 a year in his policy for 10 years. So he's just packing money into that policy for 10 years, being a good, diligent saver, patiently capitalizing the bank, what bank doesn't want to have money in the vault. And after 10 years, he's got enough money in there to not have to pay anything into the policy ever again. It just pays for itself and it keeps growing. By year 15, he has $515,900 in cash value. And he has a $1.2 million death benefit. Not too shabby. And his dividends are, you know, 9000 10000 11000 12000 a year in years 11 through 15. So he's just reaping this money coming in, uh, and that's just the dividend. The, uh, the next example here is the same guy without, without take, with taking a loan in year 11. He's got enough money in his policy at year, uh, year 11 to take a $350,000 policy loan. And we'll include some of these images in the show notes so you can see this. But his dividends, even with a maximum loan of 350 grand to buy that real estate property of that single family home, the dividends don't change. They're still 9,000, 10,000, 11,000, 12,000 dollars from years 11 through 15. So compare that to not taking the loan. His money was going to keep growing even on that capital he borrowed out to buy the house. When he does choose to pay the loan off, now, again, in the third, the third image on your show notes, he pays that loan off in year 15, and the policy's cash value is exactly what it would have been had he not taken the loan. That's the non-direct recognition advantage right there. Uh, so go back to some of our previous episodes on how these policy loans work. But this is a guy who was able to take a $350,000 loan, buy the house he wanted, use the rent money to repay the policy loan, and by year 15, his money is growing and it's working just as if he had not taken the money out. Okay, so essentially, there's two examples here. One shows a guy starting a policy, the same guy, you know, he starts the policy, and he just kind of lets it do its thing. He just lets it grow, doesn't touch it, doesn't tap into it, it just keeps growing. Mm -hmm. Then in the second scenario, he pays in the same amount, everything the same, everything equal, Mm -hmm. but he just simply takes a loan, Mm -hmm. and he does that in the 11th year, and he only has it out for the four years, he pays it back in four years. Five years, yep. Five years. And then, but he has the exact same results at the end. Mm-hmm. So it's like, whether you use it or not, you have the same end result. There you go. So why not use it? Sure. Yeah. So it's unlike a cash savings account where your money no longer is earning any interest for you. Mm-hmm. This is a place where your money will grow whether or not you use it. Now, let's lay these side by side. What if he had just simply paid cash for that real estate property? All right. Let's say that the property, again, was $350,000 when he bought it. Over five years, growing at 3% a year, his real estate property would have grown to $405,000. So a total growth overall was 55000 bucks. 
Okay, and that's going to happen regardless. Let's just say it was going to happen. Yeah, because yeah. that, that real estate was growing in the neighborhood at 3% a year. Now, now let's say that we're looking at bank on yourself with the real estate. Now, the house is going to still grow, right? Who cares how we bought it? It's still going to grow in the neighborhood at 3% a year to 405000 bucks. Now, there was some loan interest. Katrina, to your point, there was some policy loan payments that he had to pay. He had to pay 38000 bucks in loan interest. What the what? <laughs> but at the same time, the policy grew $119,000. He didn't put another penny into the policy, but it grew on its own with interest, uh, guaranteed interest and dividends up to $119,485. Okay, wait. So $119,000 minus $38,000 and some change. Yeah, you're ahead. Yeah, I'd say I'll take that. <laughs> so add that $119,000 to the $55,000 that the house grew by, and that's a total growth of $175,000. All right, so let's lay them side by side. If you just paid cash for the house, you'd have got fifty-five dollars stuck in the walls of that house. If you had the bank on yourself policy to buy the house, you'd also a grand total of $175,000 of growth. Which of those two numbers would you rather have? I'll take the 175. <laughs> Good answer. So we're going to run through at least one more strategy. We did talk about equity harvesting. I'll let you guys go back to the previous episode to hear more about that. I want to talk to you about rental repayments. So this is, again, very similar uh, to the previous strategy, but it's where a, a real estate investor might buy a single premium whole life policy and then use that policy to purchase property. Okay, a lot of P's, P's there. <laughs> you let the tenant then pay you a check, just like they would have anyway, and you take that check and you use that check money, that rent money, to pay off the policy loan, to get that money back in the policy. Of course, the policy keeps growing, and you don't lose the cash flow to make other investments in the meantime. So very simple, and we'll, for the sake of time, we'll let you guys take a look at this in detail on our show notes. But this is a uh, person who had $150,000, and they put that into a policy and then borrowed out $120,000 the very next week to buy a condo. And that condo was $120,000. And let's say that that condo had a tenant in that condo paying, let's say, $13,200 a year. That's a 11% cash-on-cash return, not too shabby. Let's say that there was no investment growth. The property didn't appreciate at all over a 10-year period. So let's be very conservative here. Likely it would have grown, but maybe not. All right, so we'd get $133,000 of rent money over those 10 years. And when we sold the property, we'd get our $120,000 back, right? And our cash value would be another $164,000. You know, that's awesome. Plus we had the death benefit, <laughs> which is over 300 grand. So I just can't see a reason why not to use this policy as a part of a good strategy for investing in real estate, if you have the choice, if you can save it first. And that's one of the key gotchas there. You have to still think about it like being a banker. All right, so rather than paying property for cash, put that money into a policy first, then borrow it out for what you need to buy the house with cash. You still come to closing with a, a check, uh, and the money is you know still growing in the policy. Let that rent money you were going to receive anyway just go to repay the policy loan for you. And at the end, you've got it all. You've got the policy. You've got the property. You've got the dividends on the policy. Uh, so, you know, how much can I get into one of these things, right? How much can I really pack into one of these policies? That's one of the big questions I start to hear 
our real estate investors ask? Well, the answer is more than 5,500. Yeah. And that's well self-directed said. IRA. Mm-hmm. A lot more. Leaving so it in the dust. Quickly. Yeah, that's you can right. move quickly. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. So guys, any other final thoughts as we wrap up? I think the only thing I would add is that some of this probably sounds a little overwhelming and sounds kind of abstract and, okay, you were talking about these numbers and these strategies, but really what does all this mean? And I would just say that um, if that's you, then come back next week <laughs> with our next episode. We're actually going to be um, having two guests on our podcast and we're gonna, they're going to be sharing about their experiences, um, not only with real estate investing, but using this strategy. We cut some real live real estate investors, got them in from the wild and we're going to <laughs> bring them into the studio. Exactly. Exactly. So these are real life clients, real life people that have used this nitro and glycerin, as Mark would say, are you so proud? Oh, I just said it. So happy. So happy. (laughs) Um, That are using, you know, this real estate investing and the bank on yourself strategy together. And they've just seen incredible results from it. So um, definitely stay tuned for that episode next week. All right. So thank you again for joining us for another episode of Not Your Average Financial Podcast, helping you think different about your money, your economy, and your future. This has been another episode of the Not Your Average Financial Podcast. To join the financial revolution and start thinking different about money, go to www.nyafinancialpodcast.com and click Request a Meeting. The topics presented in this podcast are for general information only and not for the purposes of providing legal, accounting, or investment advice. On such matters, please consult a professional who knows your specific situation.